0: Payments technology is rapidly changing, and in the United States, discussions and debates are increasingly heating, as regulators, innovators, and industry analysts search for more secure and convenient ways for consumers to conduct financial transactions. One Federal Reserve executive says it's time for the U.S. to embrace a more advanced and secure payments technology, also known as EMV chip and pen. This is the second part of our two-part interview with Richard Oliver, an executive vice president with the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, and the first U.S. banking executive to publicly declare support for a U.S. move to EMV. EMV. During this part of our interview, Oliver discusses his opinions about the future of payments, the growing threat of debit fraud, and the role the mobile channel is likely to play in helping U.S. institutions move closer to EMV. Now, when we talk about the migration of fraud, the industry is already seeing card fraud increase. Do you expect that migration to perhaps make the increase so dramatic that it it could make sense for banks maybe in the next year to maybe take a a more serious look at a move to EMV?
1: (laughs) Yeah, two or three thoughts there. I I, I certainly think that trend will be at the heart of of justifying a harder look and further investments. It has to, and and I don't expect that trend to stop. As we look at the various issues of risk and fraud in the payment system here at the Retail Payments Risk Forum, I mean, we're we're able to see how the bad guys move. And they're going to move to the place where they can commit it easily, and so I think that number is going to continue to grow. I think the other thing that's a bit perplexing is the various numbers that you see uh, in print on this particular topic. I I think it's easy to find numbers on card losses that are published by the various card companies, but I don't think that's anywhere near the number that has to do with the total cost of this fraud, whether it's the breach at Heartland and the huge cost associated with uh, managing that breach, notifying people, replacing the cards and what have you. Uh, or or whether it's the actual dollar losses. And there are also some issues, too, about who's reporting the losses. Some parties in the chain uh, may not suffer a loss, even though there's a big fraud attempt. It's pushed off to another party, and maybe those parties aren't being inventoried uh, and surveyed as much as the card companies themselves would be or the banks themselves would be. And I'm talking here particularly about the widespread merchant. Community. I know that an organization called the Merchant's Advisor Group is in the process right now of conducting an extensive fraud survey with their members. So I think part of the equation is what is the real cost of fraud and, and does the business case change then when you begin to get that on paper. So uh, I think that's the first place you know we're going to have to look. I-, I think also what's happening is there are a significant number of the very large retailers who are, in fact, quietly deploying today systems that are capable of dealing with chip and pin. Now, some of these may be chip and pin contact cards, and some of them may be chip and pin contactless capability or even nfc contactless capability but the fact they're even out there isn't very widespread in terms of knowledge so it's hard to understand how big the bubble is but i'm absolutely certain that growing fraud numbers will be a driver
0: and as you pointed out earlier the u.s has continued reliance on the magstripe card it's not only adversely affecting u.s consumers but it's also adversely affecting consumers all over the world
1: yeah i think that's right and you know when you look at the transition Some sort of dual provisioning of technology is almost impossible to avoid. But having said that, bringing an end to the mag-stripe thing as quickly as possible, sooner or later, it seems to me, almost becomes a public policy issue that maybe somebody's going to have to put a stake in the sand and said, look, we just can't do this anymore. So I think it'll be interesting to see whether it surfaces to that level or whether the industry itself begins to come to the realization it's time to move and creates an orchestrated program. But it's important to point out that an orchestrated program doesn't occur in 24 months or 12 months. If you look at the card reissuance cycles and you look at the checkout technology cycles at retailers, this is really something that needs to be planned over a four- to five-year period. As of certain dates, certain things will or will not happen. And And that's pretty much what Canada has done.
0: Now, I'd like for a moment to separate credit card fraud from debit card fraud. The credit card companies have done a relatively decent job of deploying analytical tools and putting safeguards into place to protect consumers. Debit, on the other hand, is a little bit more vulnerable and poses more consumer risk because of the tether between the debit card and the checking account. How do you expect increases in debit card fraud to change consumer spending behavior?
1: Well, it's a fair question. And uh, I I think that To one respect, the consumer, you know, enjoys this protection with the debit card that comes through Regulation E in terms of protection against losses. So from that standpoint, whether it's debit or credit, you know, the consumer has certain protections that doesn't necessarily let this get into his pocket so deeply. But even though you might be protected financially, I think the hassle associated with anything happening to your debit card or credit card is certainly something that people don't enjoy going through. I'm seeing more and more of a desire on the part of debit card providers to compete on this front. I think we all know that everybody's pushing debit, debit numbers are going up somewhere in that chain. If debit card fraud continues to arise, various providers along the chain are going to begin to suffer some pain. I've also seen the cost of those debit card systems rising because now I'm seeing rewards programs attached to them, just like they are with credit cards, and that's going to raise the cost of them. So. There are several issues at play here that are working in opposite directions, but an increase in debit card fraud, which would be, I think, a potentially anticipated outcome of staying with MagStripe, is going to change the math associated with whether or not this is a good way to act. There is another thing that could change the math, too, and, and that is something included in the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act that many people don't even know about. and it, It's called the Durbin Amendment. The Durbin Amendment assigns to the Federal Reserve System a responsibility to regulate debit card interchange fees. In essence, creating some bases on which debit card interchange fees should or could be established. And it also goes on to say that the Federal Reserve should pay attention to the fraud mitigation capabilities in the debit card system and potentially even create standards there and potentially even allow for a second interchange factor that would help to pay for whatever effort it took to get up to those standards. How that whole process turns out and where the Fed comes out in terms of regulating interest rates could really change the economics of the debit card system and potentially uh, could get people's attention with respect to the investments that are being made in mitigating fraud. So uh, I think there's a lot that can be done there. But I think that particular thing could change the formula completely.
0: Some industry experts have suggested that chip-based mobile payments could, in some way, build a bridge between magstripe transactions and chip and pin transactions as the U.S. makes its migration to chip and pin or EMV. What role do you see mobile playing in the innovation of payments, and do you see a connection between mobile and EMV?
1: You know, at first, I I didn't think there was. And the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, through uh, my group, the Retail Payments Risk Forum, and the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, have joined hands here to facilitate discussions on the issue of mobile in the United States. We've created a, an industry working group that's representative of the various players in the mobile ecosystem. We've met three times this year. We'll be meeting again soon in October. Uh, and what we're trying to do is help facilitate discussions amongst all the players to determine where does mobile fit into the U.S. payments landscape and how would it be justified, is there a business case, and basically uh, how might it best operate to meet the needs of all parties. When we started those discussions, I think I didn't understand that there was much of a tie between mobile and the issues of MagStripe and EMV chip and pin. Now I believe that there is a tie. I certainly believe there's a tie between EMV chip and pin and mobile simply because of the technologies involved. While EMV chip and pin has been implemented in Europe, for example, as a contact technology where the card actually is passed through the machine as it is today, and there's contact. Contactless card technology using chip and pin is also on the rise, and that is taking place in many different forms and many different pilots around the, the States. I mean, my assistant director here has a sticker on the back of her phone, that allows you to walk into a Starbucks and tap a terminal at Starbucks or in certain convenience stores and purchase things. And that is using a certain type of EMV technology. EMV is also developing a contactless technology for near-field communications, or NFC, which is the technology that would be used by the phone. And so consequently, the issue to me seems more the issue of contact versus contactless EMV, it's real hard to think about how you would get to mobile NFC without either going through a phase or implementing some aspect of the EMV chip and pin uh,
0: associated with cards. Now, when we take a step back and look at the payments landscape, a number of players come into view, the financial institutions as the card issuers, the merchants, which you've spoken quite a bit about, the consumers, the payments networks, the list goes on. Making a dramatic shift in payments technology, whether that be to mobile or directly to EMV, is going to be quite an undertaking. And some merchants have voiced some concern in that arena, saying that they only want to upgrade their POS devices once. They only want to upgrade their systems once. And if a move to EMV is inevitable, they'd rather just go ahead and make that move now and skip the mobile piece. How do you respond to that?
1: You know, if you're going to start from scratch and uh, create a vision that everybody could rally around, I think that would be a vision that everybody would rally around. The merchants have been very clear that they're frustrated by the potential need to move through two or three different technology changes on the way to what they see potentially as the ideal situation. Some studies that have been done recently by the Smart Card Alliance indicate that probably about... 75% of the cost of rejiggering the system to allow chip-and-pin technology in the United States is going to be borne by the merchants. So they're very cognizant of the costs here. They're looking for other people to help them with the costs. And they would sure like to avoid two transitions because I think their normal trade-out cycles are in the vicinity of three to five years. Having said that, when you look at the implementation in Europe and the fact that they are not moving yet to... Mobile NFC, uh, in fact, I think the specifications for mobile NFC, the EMV specifications for that, are probably going to be finalized and released either late this year or early next year. And then pilots will ensue. There's a pilot plan for NICE that will begin to get at this. Uh, You kind of wonder if you're not stuck in a world where you're going to have to support at least two technologies simultaneously. And it may be that the challenge of doing that can be resolved by technologists. I know, for example and you've seen it with uh, MasterCard and Visa, PayPass, and PayWave systems, that there are ways to do add-ons to your existing terminal systems to allow it to support various types of technology at the same time. And maybe that will be the way we have to go. I don't know that most people realize, for example, that Home Depot has already deployed chip-and-pin technology into its terminal systems. That Best Buy and Walmart are also doing the same thing, and so... Somewhere along the line, uh, if Walmart is deployed chip and pin, contact chip and pin, and we move to contactless, then something's going to have to be done to outfit those terminals to handle both technologies. So while I don't think I would want to be in their position of going through two transitions, it may be almost necessary to do one and a half to get to where we want to go.
0: Richard, before we wrap up, could you give us some closing thoughts about the direction you see the industry taking in the payments arena generally over the next 12 months?
1: And I'd like to make those comments in light of where we are right now in the financial crisis. You know, as we see the thawing in the financial crisis area, certainly what we're learning is that banks have a wide range of projects lined up that had been forestalled by the financial crisis. And they don't all have to do with payments, first of all. And they don't all have to do with customer-facing things in the payments arena once you start talking about payments. I think IK did a study that listed the top ten initiatives that banks need to undertake in the wake of the financial crisis. And, And one of them is just simply replacing core systems. When you look at the core payment systems that are in place in the banking industry today, they've been there for 15 years. Whether it's the core ACH system or the check processing platform or the card systems or what have you, that's a big issue. And one of the other issues is getting them integrated so that a payment is a payment. One of the things that can happen today, if you recall, is that a check payment can be converted to ACH at the point of sale. Or it can be converted to an Internet web transaction or what have you. And we're not allowing that for corporate payments, business-to-business payments today because there's a whole bunch of protections associated with the check system, like positive pay, stop pay, and fraud detection, that are not transportable to ACH. So integration of the back rooms of these banks, I think, is going to be a big issue on their plate from a technology standpoint as we look forward into the years ahead. Having said that, you want to replace your systems, there is clearly a trend to cut costs. There's a lot of consolidation going on. We're seeing partnerships and alliances in areas that used to be sacred cows. Nobody would work with anybody else on it. So cutting costs is is a big trend. And finally, new ways to create transaction revenue is another one. The things that have funded the bank payment systems in the past, whether it's overdraft fees, whether it's return item fees, whether it's card interest rates, whether it's float on checks, are all going away, either because of, electronification, or because of regulatory and legal changes that are being made in Washington. And now as we view the work that's about to take place on interchange fees, I think banks are even more worried that another big source of revenue is there. So finding new value-added revenue sources, services they can offer to their customers that are of value, most of which are probably going to be in the information management area, I think is another huge trend. And then finally, I think this whole mobile thing is a trend. Individual banks today are pairing with individual carriers to try to create mobile payment options, uh, certainly mobile banking options, where you can use your iPhone as a browser to uh, get to your home banking systems and do normal banking transactions. But there's going to be a trend to use it for payments also, and that's going to occupy a lot of people's thinking as to how they might partner better and how to resolve the formula for revenue sharing and cost sharing between the players in the mobile payments ecosystem, which is a different group of people than we see in in some of the other payment streams.
0: Richard, I'd like to thank you again for your time today.
1: It's been my pleasure, really. I thank you for the opportunity to chat about something that is pretty exciting right now.
0: Again, we've just heard from Richard Oliver, an Executive Vice President with the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.